Access to Justice. I'm your host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. My co-host is Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor, advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for having me, Evan. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the panel. So um, this we're filming this episode just before Christmas. It's December 23rd. You might be watching this in the spring or maybe even the summer, but for us right now, it's Christmas time. Uh, with that background, we are a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health, and finance, focusing on the topics that create the greatest barriers to entry into the justice system. You can find us on YouTube, on our A2J podcast channel, and online at a2jpodcast.com. And both of those, that's the number two. So today, Heather's on the hot seat. Asking Evan questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're both on the hot seat. We're going to do something, we decided to do something a little different this time, which is... We know that a lot of our episodes kind of um, maybe go into a deep dive, which often is helpful, uh, hopefully, for, especially for someone who's worried about that particular topic. But today we want to kind of do a, a survey of family law in general and hopefully get some nice brief snippets of information that um, hopefully will give someone a good kind of round education about family law round education i don't know what that means but you know what i mean uh, awesome. a, good, a good grounding in the family in general family law in province of alberta okay but we're gonna start with kim she's got some glossary of terms types questions for us for like terms that we may use all the time on here um that perhaps um people don't know what the heck we're talking about kim I am so excited to get into this. Uh, this has been on my mind since we started the podcast because these little terms pop up all the time and I'm constantly forgetting exactly what they mean. So today is really exciting and uh, I'm just going to dive in with, uh, we'll maybe try and do this alphabetically. So the first term that we hear fairly often is the word affidavit. And that gets tossed around like we know what this thing is and um, we don't know what this is and how it gets filled out. And do we need a lawyer to do this? Take it away, you two. We didn't decide how we were going to do this. Do we need uh, a buzzer? Should we buzz in? <laughs> let's do it alternating, Heather. I'll do the first one. Okay. okay, all right. So um, an affidavit is a sworn statement. So if you see on, on TV, you're watching someone at court and they raise the right hand or they put their hand on a Bible and they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, truth so help you God? And they say, I do. That's called being sworn in for the purpose of giving testimony at court. Well, an affidavit is similar in that it's a statement that the person who gives the statement swears that it's the truth, either um, by God or they make a solemn affirmation. That's not so important how they do that. The, the important thing is that it, they know that it's not just a normal document. It's not just a statement they're submitting to their school principal or something like that. It's 
a very serious document and it's a crime. Is it a crime? I feel like it's a crime to lie. Anyways, it's against the law. I don't know. That doesn't necessarily make it against the criminal code, but it's, it's against the law to lie on a sworn statement, like an affidavit. And if you do that and you're caught, then you can be in trouble. Like you hear in suits, they always talk about perjuring yourself. We don't call it that here in Canada, but it's the same idea. It's not good to lie. Now, the only thing I wanted to mention is you can't just use an affidavit for any little thing that you want to use an affidavit for. An affidavit can only be used where it's authorized by the law. So, um, for example, when we're doing things at court, you're, the, the, the various acts that govern courts, the courts, all authorize the use of affidavits and have forms that you use for an affidavit. But if you just want to provide something to like um, an association that wants you to make a sworn statement, you can't actually use an affidavit. You have to use a statutory declaration which is different and you don't swear it. You make a, you make a dec a solemn declaration. Um, so yeah, an affidavit is only for use in specific circumstances. It's a sworn statement that can be used as evidence. Anything to add Heather? Yeah, I think in its simplest form, I usually explain it as it's like giving written, it's the written equivalent of giving oral evidence at court. It's kind of like writing it down and presenting it to the court. So um, just to highlight what Evan said, yeah, it's really important that everything that goes in your affidavit is correct. And, um, and, and it follows the rules of evidence too. So um, I haven't done it a lot, but I've been successful in striking out parts of affidavits that are opinion um, or that are things that are not known to the affiant or the person who's swearing the affidavit. So, um, yeah, that's, but yeah. that's pretty much it. It's just like giving evidence in court, but it's in written form. Yeah. That's actually, a, a, you, it's such a great point to talk about what should go in an affidavit and what shouldn't go in an affidavit. And like you said, you have to either know from your personal experience or you have to believe that it's true. And so sometimes people try to sneak in opinion because they're like, well, I believe that Heather's a jerk. So I'm putting that in there, <laughs> but that's not really an appropriate, uh, that's not what it means by believe. It's more like, um, you can't normally present evidence that somebody else told you like, Oh, I'm going to say, well, I think Kim, um, doesn't wash behind her ears. Cause Heather told me that. So that would be hearsay and that's a problem, but there's other times where it's appropriate to put in your affidavit, something you believe is true because somebody told you that is true or somebody told you that it happened. And sometimes that's, that's appropriate to put in. That's where you would use the term. Like, I believe that this is true. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of complicated rules of evidence that govern affidavits and oral evidence, but that's kind of the, the nub of it is it should be facts. <laughs> and not argument. That's another thing that people love to throw in affidavits, including sometimes lawyers. We just want to right. in a little argument. Mm. And kind of the general rule I use for that is if you're saying, you know, if you start using because in there, that's usually you don't need that state fact. Usually you're using because, because you're making an argument about something. Yeah. So just a little tip. 
And maybe just to flesh that out as an example, Evan, like what came to mind there was like, um, if you were saying you wanted full custody or full par- full-time parenting of your child, um, a parent might say, I did all of the parenting duties while we were uh, together in a relationship. I took the kids to school and bathed them and cooked and cleaned and cleaned them up and did all the things. Um, that's, that's fine. Those are the facts as you know, and believe them. So I think that I'm the best person to have full-time parenting of my kids. That's where you sort of start getting into the argument, right? There's that, (laughs) that because part. So, um, yeah, it should just be the facts that you need to rely on for your application. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next, next the, question. Not the simplest, but we got it. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is you, Heather. It's the first one. First one. Okay. 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 The next question is what is a consent order? You guys talk about these all the time. What is ah, it? Okay. So some things, um, ooh, this is hard. I knew you were going to ask about orders actually. And I was like, what is an order? <laughs> so it's a document that writes down the direction of a judge that people have to follow so in and it can be in any kind of court case it could be in a family court case between parents but it might be against a company and it says you have to pay them dollars or you need to do a certain thing so that's hold on on, heather she asked what a consent order is right well that's an order so a consent order is just where people have gone to court or have a problem that's in front of the court and those people agree on what the order should say on what the outcome is so they go to the judge and they say we've come to a resolution so we have this consent order for your consideration um the judge can still ask questions or maybe decide not to grant it um depending on their um depending on what it is, if they have any reservations or questions, or it actually doesn't align with the law. Um, but generally speaking, that's what it is. It's an agreed upon order. I, I would just add kind of the way that I describe it to my clients is an order is the law for them specifically as yeah. issued by a judge. Yeah, that's a good and way of putting you, it. It actually doesn't have to be written to be an order and enforced. In fact, Right. It takes the, us lawyers sometimes, sometimes a couple of weeks. In fact, I had one where it was like a couple months before the yeah. order was actually written and filed with the court. But the order was enforced the moment the judge said it. Right. Um, yeah, that's the only thing I would add. So then is a consent order just a sub set of court yeah. a court order is like because we talk about court orders too and consent orders and i don't know the difference yeah consent order Correct. is a court order and like heather said it's where people agree so it's by consent meaning everyone agrees and most of the time the way that that it happens well there's a couple ways i should say there's kind of two main ways a consent order comes into existence one is the parties talk offline about it or between their lawyers and they're like okay we need to update the situation or we need to have something formal in an order and we agree what the order should say and someone prepares it, takes it to the court. And as, and as long as it, it's uh, not like, as long as it's consistent with what's in the best interest of a child in the, con- in the context of family, then a judge is gonna grant it. Nine times out of 10, it's gonna be granted. The other way it happens is if parties go to court 
and they get put to alternative dispute resolution stream like judicial dispute resolution or something of that nature, then if the judge or whoever is helping them out can help them come to an agreement, then that judge can then issue a consent order there, right then and there. So could a parenting order be a consent order or those two different things? Yep. It's sort of a subset of orders or a subtype of orders. Yeah. You could have a consent order that deals with parenting and child support and spousal support. You could have a consent order that dealt with a very narrow issue of parenting, like a one-off travel plan. So it could be this person is authorized to go to Bermuda for a week with the kids. So it can be very broad, very narrow, under sort of any category, really, of court order. And Okay, I've got another question. This is totally, totally done. I'm good with, I'm good with orders now. And my <laughs> next question is, what is separation and when are you separated? Wow, what a great question, Kim. So, um, you're separated kind of when you don't, you've decided you're separated. That's kind of the only thing that's required. I mean, um, you can be separated and living in the same house with the other person still. That happens all the time, actually. So, mm -hmm. especially um, these days, right? Yeah, because it can be mm -hmm. like, okay, we, we've decided our relationship is done here we want to separate but i can't afford to go out and rent another place so i'm going to go down to the basement or wherever usually people will be sleeping separate and apart at that point in time it would be a little odd if they weren't but they were separated i think i think that's one marker we use uh -huh. but it's it's kind of there's nothing that says that that has to be the mark, but one marker that they use, people will like to use is like, well, we stopped sleeping in the same bed on this date. So I would say that's when we separated. Yeah. But honestly, Kim, it's kind of when you decide and every relationship's different. So people can kind of decide, oh, we separated on this date. And it only matters for one reason. Well, not only one reason, but the main reason in the context of divorce, it matters is you have to be separated for one year before you can get actually divorced. Um, there's a couple exceptions to that, but that's the general rule. Yeah. It can also matter in the context of property division, um, but not necessarily, but it can, it's a factor that can contribute to how property is divided in a fair way. Um, and sometimes people disagree about the data separation, but Rarely have it, have I been talking to a client. I'm like, oh yeah, you should really stick to your guns on your data separation. Theirs is just ridiculous. Usually it's like, does it really matter? Is it really going to make a big difference? Let's just carry on. Yeah. Next question. What are, are you guys ready? Yeah. What is a subpoena? <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, interesting. Um, so that is a document that a court, I think a court clerk can sign it, but for sure a judge can. And it compels someone to come to court to be a witness in some sort of court proceeding. Um, so, you know, your friend could ask you, would you come testify on my behalf at a trial? And you might go voluntarily and, and go answer some questions about
about that person. But sometimes people don't want to get involved. But if their evidence or what they're going to say about the matter is really crucial or important, um, then they can kind of be, I don't want to say, they can be directed or ordered by the court to attend at a hearing and give evidence on that matter. So um, a specific example where um, I've used a subpoena before is uh, sometimes government employees will require a subpoena in order to come to court and testify. So if you just ask them, they won't come or they can't come, you have to get a subpoena. So sometimes it's not always something that's really like adversarial, like the person's refusing to, but there are certain situations where you might need one. Yeah, we don't, it doesn't come up that often outside of criminal law, I think. Yeah. It doesn't come up yeah. that often. But I mean, it, it could come up in any, in any time there's a court proceeding, it's, it's, an, it's a tool, but yeah. I think you think of it most commonly in criminal proceedings. Yeah. Next question. What is an appeal? Hmm. An appeal is what you do if you get a decision from the court and you don't like the decision, you think there was a mistake made, then you have generally, I think this is right across the board for provincial court and Queen's bench, which are the lower two levels of court. I think you've got 30 days from the time of the decision to give notice that you're going to appeal it. And then it gets appealed to the next, generally to the next level of court. So. You can appeal a provincial court decision to the Court of Queen's Bench. You can also probably appeal it right to the Court of Appeal under certain circumstances. I'm not too familiar with how that procedure works, but I think that's the case. And Queen's Bench, if you're not happy with the, with the decision you received there, and other parts of Canada, they'll call that the Superior Court, then you appeal to the Court of Appeal. And if you're not happy with the Court of Appeal's decision, then you can appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada or apply, I should say, apply to appeal. Yeah, you have to get leave. And if you don't get leave, then um, you won't get to appeal to the Supreme Court. You have to show it's a matter of, what is it, national interest or there's a, it's a pretty high bar actually to yeah, get it's gotta the be, Supreme I think, Court. But. I think one of, it has to be novel. Um, do you have to, do you have to get leave if it's a split decision at the Court of Appeal or don't you get to appeal by right in that case? Do you know, Heather? Uh, I'm not sure. You might still have to yeah. apply for leave. But um, yeah. oh, I was just going to rewind to Evan's first sentence. He said, if you don't like the decision and you think there was a mistake, plenty of folks do not like the decision that a court makes. That doesn't mean there was a mistake. And you can't just appeal a decision. Well, I mean, you could, but you're not likely to be successful in an appeal only because you don't like the decision. You've got to show the appeal court, whichever level it is, that there was a mistake that um, in, in their rule in their decision that they made. That's right. And, and to appeal something, there is a very specific criteria. Courts of appeal don't generally deal with deciding fact. That's what the trial judge or the hearing judge is supposed to do. And so um, if you're not happy with a finding of fact, rarely is appeal going to help you. In very, very rare circumstances, would an appeal help you? Um, but like, like Heather said, you were not likely to be successful. Can you appeal it? Yes, you can appeal, but 
it might just be a waste of everyone's time and, and money. So if you're thinking about appealing, it can be tough because not a lot of lawyers, honestly, not a lot of lawyers do appeal work. So there's a smaller, it's a subset of lawyers that do appeal work and you should probably get some advice from a lawyer about whether or not it's worth it. Uh, but do that quickly before your rights expire because that appeal period does go quickly. So if you have any questions or any mm, concern that there was an error, definitely get a hold of a lawyer and and get that process started. If you decide to abandon it after the fact, then that's fine. But it's much harder to miss your appeal period and then try and 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 get <clears throat> that appeal going afterwards. Heather, do you feel comfortable off of the top of your head to tell us what the threshold for appeal is? What the bar uh, you have to meet to be successful? There's a, there's a mistake of, of law or the yeah. mixed law in fact, right? And it's okay if you're not, like, gosh, I'm not comfortable 100%. Like, I'm not 100% on it. I don't, I wouldn't want to just shoot it from the hip. I'd have to, like, all yeah. double check. But I was just yeah. wondering if you were feeling, like, really cocky today. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> All right. What's important to know is that there is a bar that has to be met before you're going to be successful at the Court of Appeal. Next question. What does it mean to petition the court? <laughs> this is one, this one's mine, right? Well, I think you started the last one. Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. This one's mine. Really you know, I, I think that's something that we hear, but that's maybe something Alberta lawyers don't commonly use. I think it just means to make an application or to bring some question to the court, I think. I agree. Yeah. You're asking the court for something. And usually the way we do that is by bringing an application of some kind. Yeah. Okay, next question. Oftentimes we have to find, seek out a commissioner of oaths or is it commissioner for oaths? What does this person do and why do we need this? Yeah, it's a commissioner for oaths. People often make that mistake of saying commissioner of oaths. I don't really care. That's fine. I know what you mean. Um, a commissioner for oaths is somebody and across Canada, we all have some, there's a, we all have somebody kind of like this. <clears throat> It's similar to a notary. We don't really have many people that are just notaries and not lawyers in Alberta. I don't think, I think there's a few, but it's not really common. Whereas in British Columbia, it's a little bit different. They tend to have notaries, notary publics all the time. Cause they have, I guess they have an increased scope of things they can do. But here in Alberta, a commissioner for oaths is somebody that has taken an exam from a lawyer and is authorized to administer an oath or a statutory declaration. Administering an oath in the context of uh, either in court or for um, doing an affidavit, swearing an affidavit. So we talked about how that was a sworn statement. Only certain people could swear you in. You can't just get that sworn by just anybody. It has to be somebody who is a commissioner for oaths, a notary, or a lawyer. And who, where can you find these commissioners for oaths? So like a, a lawyer is a commissioner for oaths. We like to say in Latin ex officio by virtue of our office of being a lawyer and a, an officer of the court. So are court clerks. And in fact, that is a great way to do it. If you have an affidavit that you're going to file, trot down to the court with it, go to the counter, swear it right there to the court clerk. They'll, they will swear it for you and then file it for you. 
and that's free. You might have to pay something for filing, but usually not for just an affidavit. Another place you can find a commissioner for oaths is at a, a registry. Huh. Registry offices always have commissioner for oaths. And usually they charge here in Alberta somewhere around $15. Beware. In my experience, they're not familiar with swearing affidavits and they, they run into trouble with exhibits on how to handle exhibits. So just, just beware there. It would probably be better just to go down to the court and get the court clerk to do it because they, they know how to handle those. Lawyers tend to charge more money for commissioner for services. Um, that's about it. If you want to become a commissioner for oaths, you can do that. Uh, there's an application that you can order and then you take a test at a law firm. I administer those regularly and we offer different options, including we'll give you, I'll give you instruction, teach you what a commissioner for oaths does, and then give you a, a, a test that's written and the multiple choice short answer, one long answer, and then a practical exam where you show me that you can actually administer an oath, et cetera. And then uh, the lawyer signs your application and puts their seal on it and you send it away. And a little while later, you get a certificate in the mail that says you are a commissioner for oaths. My final question is what is, what does LLB and JD mean at the tail end of lawyers credentials? So Heather, you're LLB, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm JD. Yeah. LLB is a Bachelor of Laws. So it's just kind of like the same as people having a BA. They put a BA Bachelor of Arts at the end um, to denote that they've got that degree or MD if they're a they have a doctorate in medicine. So LLB is a Bachelor of Laws. Um, and then a JD came in with the young folks after my generation. So I don't, I don't know what that stands for. No, I'm kidding. I do, but I'll let Evan say. <laughs> Are you a JD or an LLB? I'm a JD. Yeah. I, it stands for Juris Doctor. It's an American designation that for whatever reason we decided to adopt in Canada. So it's, it's, an, they're both accredited designations and LLB is what they use in the UK. And there's two L's because it's like a bachelor of laws. So there's the two L's is to show you that law is plural. I'm not even joking. Like, and, no, that doesn't yeah, make sense yeah. either. Yeah. I don't know. Bachelor <laughs> of laws and then juris doctor. And they, they're the equivalent designations. So it, what Heather did is not a bachelor's degree. Well, it is a bachelor's degree, but it's not a bachelor's degree. It's a post-baccalaureate program. It's a professional degree. Wow. I, I did the exact same thing. It's just called something different. And I think MD, Heather, I don't think that is a doctorate in medicine. Oh, it's, not? it's just, oh. no, it's just a post-baccalaureate uh, degree, Med oh. medical doctor, medical doctor, because you can be a PhD in medicine MD. and MDs oh. are PhDs. Oh, right. Maybe we'll get some angry doctors mailing like, hell yeah, it's a PhD. What are you even talking about? Because PhD is doctor of philosophy. Oh, right. Because you could go to science and then not even complete a science degree and then go to medicine. I don't. Yeah. Just like, just like, um, <laughs> just like for Juris Doctor, that's not a doctorate in it's, it means like Latin for doctor of the law, but it doesn't mean, but I did not do a doctorate in law. There's still an, and they still call them LLMs. So master of laws and, uh -huh. and then it's just a PhD in law. So Yeah. It's still, it's still like a, the lowest level law degree. 
that's it. That's all I wanted to ask you guys sure. today. I appreciate you entertaining my questions. <laughs> well, I hope they're, you're not the only one that has those questions. So, <laughs> all right, Heather, we got now onto the the meaty stuff. What do you? We're, we're still going to be quick and snappy, right? We're gonna yeah. we're gonna go sure. through it and give folks the basics, a nice, succinct answer to all of these. So, okay, Evan, do you want me to ask you the first question? Yeah, and then I, you have the questions in front of you, so you're going to be asking all the questions. Just sometimes they're going to be for you. Uh, okay. First child support question. We have kids. We just split up. The kids are with the other parent. Do I really have to pay child support? Yes. Next question. <laughs> Great. Okay. Uh, no, okay. All right. All right. All right. Um, yeah. Child support is the right of the child. Each parent has the responsibility to provide for the child, regardless of who the child is living with. And the policy reasons behind this are when parents, when, when one financial household is turning into two financial households, there's a reduction in wealth for both parties. Living, living, quality of living goes down for everybody. And um, so, yeah, the moment that you separate and not just you're living in the same house, because that's not necessarily the threshold, but the moment you're living in separate households, if one person has a children more than 60% of the time, the other person must pay child support. So find out how much you're supposed to pay and start paying it every single month. And if you want to find out how much you're supposed to pay, go to do a search for child support table lookup and go to the government of Canada website and it'll ask you for your gross annual gross income. Use your line 15,000 from last year's income tax. It'll ask for the number of children and it'll ask for the province you're staying in. You put all that in and it will tell you how much you pay a month and you just start doing that each and every month. And if you do that, you're not a deadbeat. You are doing everything that you are required to do to support your children. Okay, so then who pays child support if there's shared parenting? You mentioned 60% in your answer, in your previous answer. So what if you're sharing the kids 50-50 or 60-40? I knew you were going to ask me that, Heather. Well, the answer is... A natural follow-up question. <laughs> the answer is, it depends. So sometimes we lawyers like to pretend that there's a hard and fast rule that once you've crossed that 60, 40 threshold into shared parenting as using that as the definition that now you each pay each other child support and set off that amount. So in other words, if I'm paying you Heather a thousand dollars a month and you're paying me $1,500 a month, you only have to pay me $500 a month because that's the difference between the two. Right. But that's not always appropriate to automatically assume that that's how it should be done, especially if the situation was not like that for some time and now it's all of a sudden changed. That, that does not necessarily mean that the finances uh, for the households are appropriate to be dealt with that way for child support. So generally speaking, and especially if it's right at the beginning, generally speaking, that's the way we do it. We do a set off. You, you would pay um, the difference between the higher income earner would pay the difference between the two child support amounts. But 
just be careful. Don't assume that that is 100% the way it should be, or that's, that is the hard and fast rule because it just isn't. Yeah. There's more leeway there. Okay. Next one for okay. you, Heather. Next up. Do you remember what it is? No. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to ask yourself. Okay. Heather, what about if there's an adult child at home and they're going to university? Do, does anybody have to pay child support for that, for that child? Um, so again, this is kind of one of those complicated questions that it sort of depends on the circumstances. Um, but typically speaking under the divorce act, children remain children of the marriage, which is sort of the key concept for whether or not child support gets paid for them. So long as they're under the age of 18 or over the age of 18 and cannot leave the charge of their parents. So um, falling under that can't leave the charge. Usually full-time attendance at university um, falls under that or by reason of illness or disability. So if you've got a child um, that um, isn't able to work or support themselves um, because of illness or a disability, then, then child support might be in play. The question is, when you do have an adult child of the marriage, is who pays and how much? Um, and that really is a big question mark because there's quite a bit of case law um, that talks about the factors that need to be looked at to determine in that. So um, you're going to look at whether child support based child support is appropriate, even in the circumstances. So is the kiddo living with one or the other parent? Are they living in a dorm? Um, are they living in the city, the same city as one of the parents or somewhere halfway around the world? And then secondly, the big cost is university. So tuition, books, all of that stuff can be pricey and expensive. So how does that get divided between parents? And particularly, this seems to be more of an issue you one of the if, the if the child's living away <laughs> because it's like well they're not living with either of us so who should be paying for this so sometimes parents start with the proportionate rule so looking at incomes but that's not necessarily um appropriate and the law definitely gives a lot of flexibility there so um, and then you start looking at contributions from the child as well. Do they have access to scholarships, to bursaries, to student loans themselves? Um, and then sometimes, not usually for a first degree, but sometimes further on pursuing further studies, the court will even look at whether or not the child is pursuing a... Um, I don't want to say, is it reasonable course of studies? I'm trying to think of what the wording from a case law is, but something that will result in um, a reasonable prospect of employment or some sort of success. Yeah. yeah. And that they have a reasonable chance of succeeding in the program. Like, uh -huh. yeah, uh -huh. um, so yeah, that's a, that's one of those. It kind of depends. Um, one of those kind of depends, it depends answers. Um, I would just note, add on to that is one thing that I think we wanted to mention before in one of the earlier answers was child support is generally not flexible. Generally, mm. it is set in stone because it's the right of the child. Parents are not allowed to negotiate the child's rights away from the child. And so 
Um, you don't get to decide like I'm going to, instead of paying child support cash to the, uh, my ex-spouse's bank account, I'm going to pay the kid directly as they have needs. You can't do that. That's not appropriate. Um, instead of paying into my ex-spouse's bank account, I am going to pay for a car. That's also not appropriate. The court does not, is not a fan. Also, you don't get to dictate how your ex-spouse uses the child support money that you pay. You pay the child support by paying it directly to this, the other parent. And then it's up to them to make sure that they're using it to support the child appropriately. Now, so not flexible. You got to pay it. And that's the way it is. However, the situation that Heather was just talking about, good news now you can be flexible, whatever you can uh -huh. agree to, that's going to help meet the child's needs. The court, as she said, is what can be way more flexible. And it's just, it's just a different situation, especially if the kid, if the child, the adult child is like living away from the home, staying in a dorm, like maybe then it is appropriate for the parents each to pay the child money into their bank account. Yeah. So um, while it's certainly not like the rule that now you start paying the child directly, that's not true, but there is room for flexibility. If the parents can agree on how they want to do, how they want to support that child, there's way more flexibility. All right. Come at me, Heather. Okay. Next question for Evan. Um, I somehow just haven't been paying child support for a long time. And I got a, I got a notice that I owe $60,000 in child support. What do I do? Can I get rid of those arrears? Uh, you're what we call a deadbeat, Heather. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so you get a notice that you owe $60,000 in child support arrears. Um, we're making some assumptions here. And that we're going to assume that number one, there was a court order. That's why there's, there's an arrears notice here. Cause that's the only way that would happen. And it's probably been quite some time because $60,000 is pretty substantial. So the answer is you got to pay it. You have to pay it. Um, and you have to figure out a payment plan. And sometimes you can work with, with the, provincial maintenance enforcement program in it, uh -huh. different provinces. They call them different things. And here in Alberta, we call it maintenance enforcement program. You can work with them potentially on a payment plan, but if, if uh, they're not cooperative, sometimes they're just terrible to people who have debts with them. Sometimes they are literally just terrible and not helpful. Then you may need to go to court to get a court order because MEP, all they do maintenance enforcement, all they do is enforce court orders. So you may need to get a court order um, ordering a reasonable repayment plan, but you got to pay it. And when they, and if the child turns 18 um, and is not going to school, it doesn't fit in that uh, category that we talked about earlier. Yeah, ongoing child support will stop, but you still have to pay the arrears to the mm -hmm. former parent. So you can't escape. It's one of those things. You can't escape death, taxes, and child support arrears. I've had calls from MEP in my business. They, they'll they'll find the money. Uh -huh. Yeah, they can garnish. They can garnish things. So they have the authority to just, hey, hey, bank account, I'm taking you. Thank you. Yeah. 
See ya. Yeah, they can um, garnish GST returns, uh, tax refunds. They can put holds on driver's licenses, passports, uh, garnishy bank accounts. They can put ask employers to garnish wages and collect that way. They have some pretty broad um, broad enforcement and collection mechanisms. They, some, they have some big hammers. In fact, yeah. I had a client drove to my office for an appointment. We talked about this arrears bill that he has and a plan with how to take care of things because it was based on imputed income that he didn't have, et cetera. He left my office, was pulled over by the police because he did not have a license because MEP had already taken it away. Mm. Impounded his truck and he hasn't driven since that day. Mm. So um, it's tough. And that's one of those things that I, like, I'm on the fence. like. Okay, so they're not paying child support. You take away their vehicle that usually inhibits their ability to work mm. and earn more income so that they can pay more child support. Yeah. I personally think that one's not really great. Mm. But mm-hmm. 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 Um, I guess as a uh, just sort of a side note here too is if you have that kind of court order that's registered with MAP and you're really far behind. Um, as Evan said, for better or for worse, like it or not, all MEP can do is sort of take the order that's fed into their program and enforce it. So if you actually need to make a change to the order, you need to go and get <laughs> uh, go to court and get a change to that order because they they have very limited discretion in what they can do in making arrangements with with debtors. So um, that's another thing. I mean, don't go too far spending too much time negotiating with them um, other than a payment plan because they can't change that underlying court order. So I got separated five years ago. We've never done anything with child support. Now what? We have no court order. We don't have anything. Now what do I do? Are you asking me again? Okay. Yeah, I'm asking all right. Um, are, sorry, am I the payor? Am I answering the question from the, for the person who's supposed to be paying? I think you could pick either one. Why don't you put, well, let's go okay. with recipients. <clears throat> okay. So he's separated. never paid me anything, but now I'm having a really rough patch. I need the money. Yeah. Uh, I know he probably should have been paying the past five years or she should have been paying the past five years. Now, now what do I do? Can I go backwards? Yes, you can go backwards. This is called um, retroactive child support that will result in an arrears amount. Um, and so there, whenever you're faced with a situation like this, there's a number of ways to handle it. We're, let's, let's assume that negotiations won't work. And so we've got to go, we're, we're just going to skip right to how do we do this using the court process? And that the answer for that is you would have to start uh, a court application. There's any number of ways you could do this, depending on what the strategy is for your particular situation. But regardless, you had to get in front of the court, you get a court application. So you could go and have this heard before the court submitting all the information. 
uh, financial information and you'd be requesting the other person's financial information so that it could get before the court. And um, then the court will listen and will make a court order accordingly. Um, and in a situation where we're five years down the road and you're wanting to go back five years into the past, um, and there's, there hasn't been any court order yet. I want to say you can probably go all the way back. We have case law from the Supreme court that dictates with changing an existing child support order and limits on how far you can go back, depending on, um, whether there's been exchange of financial disclosure and when the person who wants the change or knew about the change told the other person about that, there's limits on how far you can go back for those purposes. But I think, and Heather, please correct me if you, if you think differently, but I think you can probably go back the full five years if nothing's happened so far. Am I, what do you think? I feel like you're thinking of Contino in those cases, right? Um, hmm. Contino and yeah, the Contino's yeah. partner. Colucci. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those, I'm pretty sure those have to do with varying child support. Yeah, orders. you're right. Yeah. Because it's the right of the child. It's the right of mm -hmm. the child and mm -hmm. the, the person has to pay. Yeah. And even under those uh, cases that we mentioned, they, um, one of the reasons you, the limit generally is three years. You can go back three years is the general rule. From um, effective notice. Yeah. Or back to effective notice to a maximum of three years, or is it yeah. three years? Yeah, I think that's what it is. But that's not, that's not where it ends. If one of the reasons that um, if there's been what they call bad behavior on the part of the other person because they're not providing their financial disclosure, that's one of the things that constitutes bad behavior. Then you can go back further. So and so, look, don't go five years. First of all. Get on this right away. As soon as you get separated, you should be sorting out child support. It's the right of the child. Um, but in that kind of a situation, you'd bring a court application, put it before the court, and the chips will fall where they will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, oh, I have my last question. I guess I'll ask this one to myself. We just separated. We know that we're going to have to address child support, but we can't quite seem to figure it out or come to an agreement. But neither of us makes a lot of money and we can't really afford lawyers. Is there anything that we can do? Um, and my answer would be, well, I mean, I think you're going to get shuttled into this anyway, if one of you tries to bring a court, um, application for child support. Um, but what you would be diverted to would be the child support resolution program. So, um, any parties that are self-represented that bring an application at the court of Queens bench have to go through the child support resolution office. And basically what it is, is you bring all your financial disclosure and we've talked about that in previous episodes. So tax returns generally, um, but there's a, you know, a list of other things and you'd have a meeting with a child support um, resolution officer and they would try and help you come to uh, an agreement. So it's, it's like a mediation sort of um, meeting with a resolution officer. Um, there, as far as I know, there is no fee. It's a, it's a free service provided by the government of Alberta. 
Um, and it just tries to divert those kinds of cases out of the court um, if you don't need a full-blown court hearing. So um, that would be a good place to start. Um, and we can post a link to that program in our show notes. So, um, but again, that's the Child Support Resolution Program. And if you're just Googling around looking for it, it'll be on the Alberta government website. Nice one, Heather. Nailed it. Okay, that's everything that I've written down for child support. So okay, what do we got next up? We're up for spousal. Okay, hit me. Okay, so I was a stay-at-home mom for about 20 years. Okay. Okay. We have a few kids, but they're grown now. Um I'm 50. I haven't worked since we had our first child. Um, my spouse makes about $200,000 a year. Am I going to get spousal support if we separate? That's a good question. Probably, yes, you would have an entitlement to spousal support. Um, whether or not you'll get it is another story. But let, let me break that out a little bit. So spousal support is a two-stage analysis. First, you determine whether or not there's an entitlement, and then you determine how, if there is an entitlement and only if there's an entitlement, then you determine how much should be paid and for how long. So there's three um, grounds for entitlement for spousal support. Contractual, where there's a marriage agreement or some kind of contract in place of dealing with spousal support. That's not the case here. It's rarely the case. I've not come across that very often, although I've helped clients uh, enter into those types of contracts. Um, the next is compensatory. And then the third is non-compensatory. Compensatory arises in this type of a situation that you described, Heather, where think traditional relationship. One person stays at home, taking care of the home. If there's children uh, caring for the, being the primary caregiver of the child, um, you know, doing the shopping, um, this time, this type of thing, homemaker type activities. But honestly, I don't think the court really cares whether or not there was actual homemaking going on. If one person stays at home, tends to be what they're looking at. Uh, while the other person is out of the home, advancing their career, increasing their earning capacity, then the phrase is compensatory, that's the entitlement. The person that stayed at home deserves to be compensated for the sacrifices they made by not being out in the workforce and increasing their earning capacity. So they have a right to share in that earning capacity that they actually helped build by allowing the person to be out of the house working and advancing their career. So that's, that's uh, how you establish grounds for compensatory support. Non-compensatory support may also very well apply in this type of a situation. That is where there is a need and the other person has the means to pay. Usually that need is related to a, a mental or physical uh, disability, um, but not necessarily always. And that need though, it should have a relationship with, or a nexus, sometimes courts like to say that word nexus, with the relationship or its breakdown. And the stronger that nexus is, the more likely there would be a, an entitlement on non-compensatory grounds. Right. 
So um, yeah, yeah, we didn't. Yeah. We don't need to get into how much or how long. The question was, no. do I yeah. do I get it? And the answer is, yeah, probably. Could I expect child or spousal support? And I guess on the needs basis too, it's important to sort of recognize that that's not the same gauge in all circumstances. So um, we're not using like a measuring stick of like, what is the bare minimum amount that a person needs to survive? And that's what they'll get. It's going to be relative to the um, relationship and to the the recipient's ability to become self-sufficient. So In my example, where the person um, that's seeking spousal support is really quite a bit later in life and late in their career, um, their advantages to or their ability to retrain or to take advantage of career opportunities are going to just necessarily be limited by their age and stage in life. Um, They're not going to be able to get up to that self-sufficiency level as quickly. And if they become accustomed to, I can't remember what I said in my fictional example, but that there, the I think I said two hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, um, something like that. You know that person going to an income of. a month is probably not going to meet their needs um, in the relative scheme of that family. So it's pretty, it's pretty context dependent. Yeah, that's such a good point. When we're talking about needs-based support or non-compensatory support, it's not objective, it's relative. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. sometimes uh, might not expect that. So if somebody like the cases that you read about, because they have all the money to go to these long trials and stuff is like, you know, they're, they're millionaires, you got tons of money and, uh, there's really no need really mom's getting a lot of money from child support or whatever, but there is a need because they use the context of the relationship to determine whether or not there's that need. Yeah. Good point. That's right. Yeah. There's one case that, uh, well, you can find it. It's, uh, I think it's the Hughes, uh, I might've mentioned this in a previous episode, but the Hughes car wash folks, um, and it's a reported public decision, but, uh, if memory serves, I think the flower, the fresh flower budget in that case was in the like somewhere in the thousands of dollars a month. Like it was so, and, but that, that was considered a reasonable uh, expense in the pattern of spending of that family. So it's, it's, it's really depends on the circumstances. We find it. I felt like you're, you were twitching. You had something you wanted to ask or say in there. No, I read that case. Actually, I don't spend my time reading case law, but I actually (laughs) did read about that case because it was interesting in terms of dollar values moving around. Yeah. 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 It's a wild one, but it's not the only one out there. Yeah. All right. What we got next, Heather? Um, Okay. Next one. Um, I've been a stay-at-home husband um, with six kids. Um, uh, no, that doesn't work. Oh, yeah. And my wife makes $120,000 a year. Um, am I going to get spousal support on top of the child support for the kids? Okay. So... The first thing I'm going to do here is I'm going to go to the child support table lookup on the government's website to see how much 
child support would be payable on an income of a hundred and a gross income of $120,000 for six children. And the answer is $3,390 a month. Now I didn't do the math for uh, how much tax comes off the, that gross income, but yeah. it's not insignificant at 120,000. A good chunk of that money is going to go to taxes and so forth. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. <clears throat> The important thing to know here is child support has priority. So child support is taken into consideration when we do spousal support calculations. And in the previous question, we had talked about whether or not there's an entitlement. Well, now we need to talk about how much and for how long, I guess. Well, we don't need to talk about how long, but we could talk about how, how much. Yeah. The way we determine that, well, first of all, there's no hard and fast answer. It's not an, it's not as black and white as child support, where it's the right of the child and there's nothing you can do about it. It's way more flexible and people can agree to whatever they want to agree to. And so the government has published these spousal support advisory guidelines that really are guidelines. They also publish child support guidelines that aren't really guidelines. They're more of the rule, but spousal support advisory guidelines really are more like guidelines. And so they have kind of complicated formulae for calculating spousal support, depending on the length of the relationship, length of the cohabitation, um, whether or not there are children still living at home and how close the parties are to the age of 65. All of these things are taken into consideration. There's slight um, changes to the formula on depending on those, those factors. So in this case, uh, how long were you married for? Do you remember Heather? Well, we have six kids, so I'm going to say at least 12 years. So 12 years. Um, the youngest child is like brand new. Yeah. So if there were no children, the starting point would be for length of time anyways, would be six years to 12 years, somewhere in that range. But when there's young children, the starting point is indefinite. I know I just said we weren't going to talk about duration, but here I am talking about it. <laughs> the, starting po- the starting point is indefinite. Um, and that doesn't mean forever. It means right now we don't know how long it needs to be paid for. And we'll look at it later down the road. As for how much we punch it into this, we, we put the incomes into our calculating machine and we have special software that does this for us as lawyers. And it spits out the child support numbers. And then it spits out a range low, medium, and high of the spousal support, uh, from the spousal support advisory guideline uh, formula. And in this case, I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't punched them in to find out exactly, but I would not be surprised if there was zero spousal support payable, even if there was a good entitlement, simply because um, once you, and and you didn't say how much money you make, Heather, um, but even uh, if, if you're making I'm any kind of money. I'm a stay-at-home parent, yeah. So nothing, I'm not making anything. Right. And that will affect it. If you did have a job and you're even making $20,000, that could very well end up with, with, with you having higher income after the adjustment for child support. Right. And in that case, there's no spousal support payable where the person who has the entitlement makes more money than the other person. There's no spousal support payable. Mm-hmm. So the answer is we don't know. We got, we need more information, but yeah, the takeaway here is child support takes precedence. And that is factored into uh, the whole thing when you're determining how much spousal support is payable.
Right. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's exactly it. And entitlement doesn't necessarily just cause you establish entitlement or there's a very strong entitlement claim doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get an amount because there may be no ability to pay after child support's taken out or sometimes property, depending on how the property flushes out. If someone ends up with a lot of debt or a whole bunch of other reasons, there might just mean that there isn't money to pay, even if there's good and entitlement so yeah that that's that's a good point uh because i because i think i've actually talked to you about this recently we were talking about this and uh that can be a factor that needs to be taken into consideration if someone is servicing debt such that they don't have any actual income once it's all taken care of then that's a factor yeah hmm. Okay, next question. Kim, do you have anything that's burning in your mind on spousal support? We had one more scenario, did we not? Be um, married for five years, ex is just a total bum, never worked, no kids. Uh, I have to support this loser and for how long? <laughs> Sorry, I'm muted because my children are screaming at one another. So, I mean, I'm sorry. Do you want to take I that can, one? Yeah, I can take it. I can give take it, it, it a start and I'll jump. Okay. So, um, like I mentioned before, sometimes it seems that the court doesn't care whether someone was just being a bum or was actually providing some kind of value by staying at home. Sometimes It seems to me that sometimes I don't really care that much. Um, but... There's a couple of things that I wanted to get at through this question. And, and the first one is the duration for a, a marriage that was 20 years, less than 20 years. The starting point is half the length of the relationship to the full length of the relationship. So in this case, they were together six years, right? Five or so, six. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like three, three to six years could be what you might expect for duration. If there's an entitlement and an amount that can be paid. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was this, this person, it, let's say they're capable of working and they're just, a, they're like, we said, they're a bum. They're just like, no, I don't want to work. Why would I work? You make lots of money. You just pay me spousal support. I have an entitlement to it because I stayed at home. <laughs> and one of the factors or one of the objectives I should say of spousal support is to promote self-sufficiency as in as far as it's reasonable to do that. And so wielding that as your weapon, you might go to court and say, this person should have, first of all, doesn't have an entitlement. If they do have an entitlement, then they should have income imputed to them. That's a fancy way that we say that we should just pretend like they are making money. So that'll encourage them to actually make money. And so we'll say, uh, let's say they have no skills. Well, they can at least make minimum wage and let's impute an income of about $25,000 a year to them. And then that will affect how much spousal support would be payable. Um, the other thing I wanted to really drive home is if you go to court for spousal support and people don't agree about it, so you have to go to court to get an answer. You may have heard of regular chambers or special chambers. Those are two types of what we call interlocutory hearings. Interlocutory just means kind of in the middle of the process. They're not meant to be final decisions. 
to get a regular chambers hearing can take about a month or so, depending on how busy the courts are. Special chambers can take three to six months, again, depending to get a date, even to go and be heard. The only way you get a final answer is through a trial. Trials can take usually somewhere around a year from the date you schedule them before you actually are appearing in trial and are expensive in both time and money. So the first place you'd end up at the court would be in, in one of those interlocutory hearings, like, like um, special chambers or regular chambers. And it seems to me that the court tends to not do a full analysis on spousal support at this stage because they're just trying to kind of make it livable until the trial happens. They're not making a final answer on whether or not there's a spousal support entitlement. So what they generally do is they look at simply, is somebody really poor? Does somebody have a need here? Does the other person have the ability to pay? Then I'm going to make what they call an interim, meaning it's just meant to, for, as a stopgap, without prejudice, meaning they haven't made a decision based on the facts, yeah. Um, and this can be overturned later and the person can get credit for having paid this amount and the other person has to pay it back. Interim without prejudice order. And so what's likely to happen is if one person's really poor and the other person is making pretty decent money at an interim hearing, the court will probably say, well, until you get to trial, you're going to pay spousal support because I'm not going to decide whether or not there's there should be that amount paid right now. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of looking at my other screen if anybody's watching on video. And what I'm looking at is, and this is for any listeners out there who might want to do a deep dive or do some research on their own. Um, but one document that I go to or send clients to sometimes are the is the user's guide that goes along with the spousal support advisory guidelines. So it's a uh, Oh, goodness, it's well over 100 pages, um, but it's also available online. And it really breaks down a whole lot of these different factors um, and uh, tree branches, really, if you will, um, that go into the question of spousal support. So, um, I mean, obviously, you can go get or I, we encourage you to go get legal advice from a lawyer. But if you want to get familiar with what, you know, a lawyer is going to be asking you about or you want to do some research on your own um, and you're into reading and doing a deep dive, I would um, I, I definitely point you in that direction. So we can put a link to uh to that as well in the notes on this episode so that's the uh i'm just gonna say oh, it again for, guidelines user guide yes the user yeah. guide and that's published um uh, there's a couple of professors um canadian professors that know spousal support inside and out they've done the survey of case law they look at judicial trends um and it's published on the government of canada website yeah, uh, I also use that. Look, spousal support is a contentious area of the law, and the law is not particularly helpful. It's nice when the law just tells you this is how it is. You just do this. Here's a simple test that anybody can apply, and it's just not appropriate, or we haven't figured out a way to do that anyways for spousal support the way we did for child support. So what that means is lots of people fight about it, and we need lots of direction to kind of help avoid fighting about it so that... Um, People can spend less money on lawyers and going to court. Yeah. It's kind of like an experiment with 
15 or 25 variables, right? So it's just, you know, you're going to get a different result <laughs> um, when you have that many moving pieces. So, um, you know, and I know I do say this quite often, like you take this to five different judges, you're going to take get five different answers. But with yeah. spousal support, that, that really is quite true. I mean, there's like obvious extremes, um, but there's lots of cases in the middle with a lot of variability. Yeah, agreed. Well, how many more questions do we have? Because it's uh, we've been this is a marathon. We've been doing this this uh, session, which I'm fine with. But how many more I'm questions? I'm gonna have to take off pretty soon. <laughs> do Do we have like that? Was it for disposal? Yeah. What do? We, how many questions do we have for property? Maybe we can do one for property and then call it. Uh, I don't have any questions down for property. I think. Oh yeah, I was going to do a succinct, I was going to do a succinct property yeah. explanation. Okay. All right. Next question is property division. What? <laughs> so, where uh, when you're getting a divorce or you're splitting up, and in Alberta this applies whether you're married or your adult interdependent partners. And I, we're not going to explain what that is right now, but it's a defined thing uh, from the Adult Interdependent Relationships Act. So you can always look up that and look up that defined term. But if you if you categorize either of those, then the Family Law, Family Property Act, excuse me, governs the property division. The starting point is this: all property that was acquired during the relationship belongs to both parties equally, regardless of whose name it's in. So equally 50, 50, all the property that was acquired during the relationship doesn't matter whose name it's in. That's the starting point. Subject Bank to accounts. Yeah. Houses. Cars. Boats. TFSAs. Uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> what about pets? They're, they're yeah. assets, right? Pets? That's, I did just read an article saying we need to stop. We need to... Uh, give pets human rights and stop thinking of them as property in Alberta. But right now they're still considered property. Okay. Subject to exemptions. Exemptions. There are five categories of exemptions. Dang it. I had it up here on my screen to help. And then I just, I scrolled, I scrolled. I have that, but it doesn't help you, Evan. I'm just going to watch you. Uh, What's the section? Watch number? you squirm. <laughs> Seven. Section seven. Okay. Oh, yeah. There we go. Okay. So um, I know them, but there's a few things that we want to like really look at the wording because the wording is important. Okay. So those five exemptions are any property that you acquired before the relationship, any gifts. This can be a gift from one spouse or partner to the other. It can be a, or a gift from a third party. Inheritance. Um, proceeds. This is where I want the, uh, the wording. Proceeds from an insurance policy that is not an insurance in respect of property. Unless the proceeds uh, for loss to both are for both spouses. So, if it's not property insurance, the proceeds from insurance, if it's just for one of you, is exempt. 
And the other one is an award for settlement for damages in tort in favor of a, of a spouse, unless it's for both of them. So damages in tort speaks to tort is, is um, a fancy lawyer word for, I should not even know another way to say it, but basically something you can sue somebody for. Yeah. Like damages. private wrongs. Yeah. Private wrongs. So think <laughs> negligence, defamation, um, Negligence Most personal hurt. personal injury sort of yeah. falls under there. It's not a tort on its own, but I think there's even one depriving one of the marital delights or something like that. <laughs> it's not one used very often, but I think it might actually not be one anymore. But that's those are torts, personal private wrongs. I like the way you said that, Heather. So, anyways, proceeds from a court case where you sued somebody uh, that those are exempt. So, what is exempt? The value of the property, the date it was acquired or the date of the relationship, whichever is later. And in order to keep that exemption, the property needs to remain in um, one person's name alone. In a bank account, that's just in that person's name, for example. Uh, placed into a, it can be traced, so paid down uh, a down payment or on real estate or paid down a mortgage if that real estate is in one person's name only. Um, if it's put into a joint asset, it immediately loses half of the exemption because it's deemed to be a gift to the other person. That's, that's where we go. So that's how property, that's how it's categorized. I would just say one other thing. There's kind of a catch-all in the Family Property Act. And that catch-all, or I should say overriding principle is a better way to say it, is in so much as it is fair and equitable, that wording is used quite a few places when we're talking about how to divide the property and what property should be considered family property to divide. It has to be fair and equitable. There may very well be cases where the parties even got married but remained financially distinct from one another and made their own choices. One person made bad choices. One person made good choices. If they really maintained financial distinctness and remained separate financially, probably it would not be fair to then um, divide equally. Um, but that's very rare. Most, most married couples aren't in that kind of a situation. And even if you think you are, you probably aren't. It's, it's quite rare. Um, but that is still an overriding principle. It should be fair and equitable. Most of the time it is fair and equitable that everything's split 50, 50 subject to those exemptions. So the next step that you do is in order to actually divide the property or determine how to do it, according to the family property act is, um, you make an inventory. What is the family property? Make a list. Um, then you assign a value to each item of property. Sometimes that can be tricky. Sometimes it's as easy as looking at a bank statement. Other times it's, well, the house, what is it worth? You can't really know until you sell it. You can get an appraisal, which is probably the next best thing to actually selling it, but it's still not, you know, it's about as good as you can do unless you sell it. Uh, vehicles, those are tough. You can maybe do some comparables on Kijiji, but whatever. Whatever you guys can agree on, you assign the value to each item. Then you make two columns, yours and the other guys. And you put each item of property into somebody's column. You could put all in all the property into one person's column. At this stage, it doesn't really matter. Whatever you want to do. 
then you add up each of those columns and the person that has more property than the other person would pay half the difference to the other person. And that way they'd both end up with an equal amount. In other words, um, Heather and Kim, if Heather had $100,000 in her column and Kim had $50,000 in her column, then the half the difference would be 25,000. So Heather would pay Kim 25,000. They'd both walk away with 75,000. Right. Now that's how you do an equal property division, but the family property act has clauses in it that allow you to contract out of that property act. And you can agree to whatever you want to, as long as there's independent legal advice and there's no coercion or um, uh, what are the other words we use for that, Heather? Uh, undue influence, duress. Yeah. As long as there's none of that and everyone's okay with it and agrees and there's independent legal advice, you can agree to whatever you want. You can agree to an unequal division. It's up to you. It's you're free to do that. And there may be good strategic reasons to agree to an unequal division, maybe to facilitate a faster divorce, or you can use an unequal division property to compensate for spousal support, perhaps. Um, just needs to be a proper written agreement with independent legal advice and certificates attached to it. That, in a nutshell, is property division. Heather, do I miss anything? Is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I think, I guess it would just be maybe another question is sometimes folks wonder, like, do we have to divide each asset? Do we have to take each bank account and divide it in the middle? Um, yeah. What about my pension? So yes, pensions are family property and the period that you earned during the relationship would be divisible. Um, do we have well, to sell the car? Pensions are special because one thing I didn't mention is the date that you use to value the property is not is, is set in the act as a date of trial, which hopefully you're not going to a trial. And so you have to kind of agree on a date and it could be anything. Pensions though, often have rules that supersede the family property act. Um, and usually I think uh, that is the date of separation. So the, we call it the, the period of joint accrual. And that would be the date of the start of cohabitation generally to the date of the ceasing of cohabitation. Sorry, I just want to interject that, Heather, and you're on a good roll. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, and pensions will have their own rules. Some, a, a common one is that they won't transfer more than 50% of a pension oh. to a non-pension holder. So, um, but aside from those things, you there's a lot of wiggle room and flexibility in how you divide the value. So um, I guess that's the takeaway there is that, no, you don't have to cut each asset in half. Um, what you're dividing in half is the value of all of the assets um, and debt. I mean, we didn't talk about putting debt into this column and the Family Property Act doesn't really talk about debt a whole a lot, but we do put that in there because the mortgage, of course, is going to tell us about what the value of the home is that that person is ending up with and so on. But um, yeah, anyway, you're not dividing each asset. You're dividing the overall value that the family accumulated during the relationship. So there's a lot of flexibility there. Yeah, you could keep exactly. a whole bank account, but give the car to someone um and and horse trade those things yeah and i think a lot of um challenges people run into when they're trying to divide the property is thinking about whether or not it's fair and equal um and being worried that it's not and as long as you do the process i just described and, and have or have somebody help you do that to make sure that everything is taken into account another thing you have to consider is 
um, tax deferred assets like um, RSPs and, and pensions and those derivatives like Aliras and RIFs and all those kinds of things. Kim can tell you all about them and why they're useful in your financial plan. Those you need to take into consideration the fact that the value you see right now is the before tax value. And if you were cash to cash them out, you would then be taxed on them. And so usually we've talked about this before. Usually we use somewhere around 25%. Um, but yet that allows you to compare apples to apples. You can then put the RSPs into that whole division and say, okay, you take this much of the RSP, as long as you deduct the taxes theoretical taxes from them, then you can you can compare that to the rest of the property easily. If you don't, you'll get a skewed number and it won't be fair. Yeah. And finally, the wedding ring. Is that, does that have to be divided in half? The wedding ring, Kim, is a gift. <laughs> and what are gifts? They are exempt property. And so the wedding ring is, is a gift. It, 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 that's how it's interpreted at law. There are some challenges, like, I mean, that sound like that's real simple and just, a, just, there you go. And there's the answer, but everything needs to be taken in consideration. Not everybody is the same. Generally speaking, that's how it's handled. One challenge you might run into is if you are Indian where gold is a very important part of the marriage ceremony and um, gifted from both sides of the family to the opposite or to both spouses it's a very important aspect of the relationship and the marriage. And it, there's cultural considerations there about how the gold is considered and what its use is. So um, that's kind of something that uh, needs to be taken into consideration. I'm not going to give you like a hard and fast rule of how that gold should be handled. But the wedding ring, generally, it's a gift. And the person who got it gets to keep it forever. Yeah. Yeah. or sell it upon it sometimes uh, i've had this a little bit i can't even remember how it ended up unfolding but um where there was like a sentimental attachment to a ring as well like something that was like a family oh like it gave um, like the the husband gave his grandma's heirloom wedding ring right right that could be tricky so, but i think i think it's still the starting position is that was a gift as a promise mm -hmm. for marriage and that promise was fulfilled <laughs> yeah yeah and it can be i'm but it can be difficult because then that's an emotional piece as opposed to like but you know, just a but you know what you could do there you know what you could do there heather is is uh in that type of situation you the spouse probably doesn't want to keep the wedding ring Right. Like I was saying, you get to keep it forever. Well, nobody really wants to keep a wedding ring when you're getting divorced. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, look at this. Remember my first marriage? That was awesome. Or my second, whatever. Right. Like that's not, to, you don't want yeah. <laughs> So come to think of it. I think what they decided to do in that case was to gift it to the child or one of the children. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Any number of ways you can handle it. Another way you can yeah. handle it is say, all right, I'll give you the wedding ring, but then I'm taking an extra $5,000 or however much the wedding ring is, is worth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Good answer. That was, this was a long session and it's like, I don't think you're working tomorrow, Heather. I'm not working tomorrow. We, we just were so dedicated to this podcast that we stayed extra late to hammer out this episode for all of you. Um, even though all I want to do right now is go home and I can't, cause I have to do more stuff at the office so I can be done for the holidays. 
Well, I'm going to meet Kim at the mall and help her with her shopping because we kept her late. So, <laughs> yeah, well, let me uh, let me finish it off. Then this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening and or watching. And if you have any questions you'd like us to address on the podcast, send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's access the number two justice podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Thanks everyone. And have a great evening. You too, Evan. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turned water.